Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Mike the Gardener gardening podcast. I don't know about you, but I just love a good gardening book. In fact, if I was to show you my bookshelves, you'll see that the books are crammed in almost as tightly as the plants in my own garden are. I've literally got shelf loads of them. Some of them are practical gardening books. Some of them are plant special books. Some of them are about great gardeners past and present. But just recently, I was sent a copy of a new book from Lula Ellender called Grounding, Finding Home in the Garden. In her new book, Lula explores the relationship between gardener and garden and reflects on the countless ways in which growing plants and working in harmony with nature can help us feel grounded in an uncertain world, something I'm sure we can all relate to right now. Lula's garden in Sussex is an unruly but beloved place that is not permanently her own. When, just a few weeks after losing her mother, she's told that she and her family might have to leave the rented house that they have made their home, her immediate response is to freeze and to neglect the plants she spent years looking after. But, before long, she finds herself back in the garden, tidying, planning and planting, putting down roots even though she may not be there to see the shoots emerge. So in this episode... I chat to the book's author, Lula Ellender. I started our chat by asking her what she could tell us about her new book. So Grounding tells the story of a growing season in my garden here in Sussex, um, from the March equinox to the September equinox. And it's um, a very sort of uncertain time in my life. My mother had died recently and we live in a rented house and we were just given notice um, that the house was going on the market and we had to leave. Um, and that kind of prompted this sort of weird stasis where I couldn't be bothered to do anything like tending the garden just seemed pointless if we weren't going to be here but as the spring came I kind of changed how I thought about it and so the book explores how I used the garden to kind of plant my family in this space with this kind of faith that we would be here to see things grow that we would be here to eat the vegetables in the autumn um, and as I was doing that I was thinking a lot about why we garden um, about artists and their gardens, about the connections between mothering and gardening. And so it became a kind of wide ranging um, exploration of basically why we garden, um, but rooted in my kind of small, very humble garden here. And how long had, have you been in that small, humble garden? Uh, we've been here nearly 11 years. So the garden had obviously been built up quite a lot in that time. Yeah, when we first moved here, um, it was pretty wild. The, um, so it's a kind of rectangular shape and there's a beautiful old wall along two sides of it and then this kind of crazy hedge along the other side. And it makes the garden very shady in half and then really sunny. So the sunny side had already had some beds put in by previous tenants, um, but it was all quite haphazard um, because people just hadn't lived here for very long. So, you know, they'd been here maybe a year or two. So no one had really had the time to kind of properly get going with it. And so I just bit by bit tried to tackle the garden. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I started with the bit that I could see from the kitchen window, 
because that seems to be where I spent most of my time <laughs> washing up. Um, and then gradually just try to kind of tame it. But it's that kind of place where you feel like you've got on top of one bit and then you've turned your back and everything's gone kind of crazy in another part of it. So I don't think I'm ever going to fully have this garden in my control, but that's part of the book as well. Is like, how do we live with that knowledge that we can't control nature and why do we want to? So when did you actually think that this would make a great book? Um, well, that's an interesting question because I started out wanting to write about homesickness um, and I was thinking about it in terms of a house that we had to leave when I was a child and thinking about the kind of echoes of that that would possibly be happening to my children now. Mm. Um, and But I, I couldn't quite find a sort of way into it. It was very abstract and theoretical and I was talking to my editor about it and she said, well, why don't you write about your garden? And that just was kind of, a, you know, there was like a, a kind of ping moment. I thought, of course, that's absolutely the way in. This is, um, yeah, this is how I should do it. And so then it was like a real joy because when I wasn't writing, I was gardening, but it was all feeding into, you know, everything, everything I was doing was kind of working towards this thinking through all these things I was working on. So it's been lovely. And you say in the book, when a plant is forcibly uprooted or moved to a different environment, it may suffer something called root shock. Its leaves curl and wilt, its limbs and twigs die back, its growth is inhibited, and the stress makes it more susceptible to injuries. It may even die as a result of the displacement. You are anticipating a form of root shock for yourself and your family, and it was a familiar sensation. So that really sort of encapsulates this book, doesn't it? A plant being moved and the stresses and strains that it undergoes were then actually how you and your family felt during this difficult time. Yeah, it felt like that was a really good kind of way to think about it. And um, the uprooting that I'd had as a child uh, really stayed with me and the house that we left kind of haunted me throughout most of my adult life and I kind of dreamed that one day I'd be able to buy it back and it would be mine and um, so this idea of uprooting is a, a thing I've been kind of living with but obviously that's not on the scale of you know what's happening to the poor people in Ukraine and I'm not mm -hmm. kind of drawing any equivalence with the horrendous things that people have experienced but I am interested in that idea of the impact of this forced uprooting um, when it's not your choice to leave even when it is your choice you know people can really mourn their gardens and really mourn the spaces that they've tended. Um, and I'm interested in this idea of what we leave behind when we leave a place. So um, as I was writing the book, I, I kind of realized we don't really ever leave. Like there'll be things growing here that I've planted in you know, 50 years when I'm long gone. Mm. Um, and we, the, the kind of resonance that we have. So even though we may have been uprooted, there'll be things left behind. And I think that's something really lovely about gardening. You're clearly a passionate gardener that comes across in the book, and I want to touch on that later. But who is the book for? Who who would your target audience, your target readers? Oh, that's such a good question. I hope it will reach people who love gardening. Um, but it's very much not a manual or like a how to garden book. I'm not mm. an expert. Um, so I'm also hoping that it reaches people who are interested in exploring ideas of home and belonging. And also after lockdown, when lots of us kind of turned to gardens as a way of dealing with the kind of crisis that we were in, I'm hoping that it will appeal to people who've had that experience as well. And people who don't have a garden, but who live with uncertainty. So a lot of it is about how do we kind of make ourselves at home within uncertainty. So I'm hoping that it will kind of 
have a broad appeal. People who are really into gardening might like it because I look at gardens like uh, Charleston and Dixter and yeah. you know, these amazing, very famous gardens. But I'm hoping if you're not into gardening that what I wanted it to feel was that I was kind of leading you by the hand through these other gardens. So if you've never been to any of them, hopefully you will have had a little flavour. Um, but I've no idea. I hope that's who it, people like it. <laughs> Well, it's very clear. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've had a preview of the book. I've had a read through. And as a gardener, I can relate to a, pretty much everything you've written about. And again, I'll cover some of these things later. Um, but it's a book about gardening, but also so much more. It's gardening, it's plants, it's history. It's about inspiration from amazing gardens, as you say, Great Dixter and Sissinghurst. And it's also about our relationship with our own gardens. And throughout the whole book there are these incredible facts historical notes plant information and seasonal things to do in the garden for example you tell us that the lilac is thought to have come to britain from ottoman gardens and was taken to america by colonial settlers where it became a popular garden plant that represented respectability and well cared for neighborhoods and i just wondered all of this incredible information is this stuff that you had within you or did you have to research a lot for the information in the book? No, I did a lot of research for this book. I love that part of writing. So I did a history degree and I've always been really into research. So um, what I tried to do was just kind of let my imagination wander as if I was kind of wandering through a landscape and just see where it took me. Um, and at points, like my editor said, sometimes it was a bit like I was holding a balloon and I needed to come back down to ground myself. Mm. Um, so I had to make sure that the the research was that kind of grounding point, that it wasn't just kind of me in my head, that there were tangible, real things that I hoped would. What I really wanted to do is just kind of um, express my wonder and amazement in the natural world and all these incredible things that are just right there beneath our eyes if we just stop and notice them. But also the kind of putting it into a historical and I hope a bit political as well. So with the lilac, we have this idea of native plants, but often they then, you know, they originated somewhere else, but because they're mm. pretty or they taste nice, we have kind of absorbed them. And this idea of belonging and who gets to choose who belongs where. And so, yeah, the research was kind of because it was what I was interested in. Um, and I very much, you know, had to look up a lot of stuff. I'm not an expert on, you know, plants. Well, that's that's what astounded me, because there is so much information in there. Say so the book works on so many levels. It's a great read. It's very engaging, but just the factual information. And I just wondered how long has, has the book actually been in the process of writing and research? Well, that's hard to answer, because like I said, I was starting a sort of different book. So the the work I was doing about belonging and home, that kind of research went was probably like five years ago I was doing that. Um, and then the sort of deep work on the garden um, three years before. Yeah, so it's hard to tell. Mm. I mean, I wrote it during lockdown, but I'd done a lot of research before that. And um, because of the way it's structured between this growing season, some things I, I've had to sort of play with time a little bit. Um, so some of the things happened outside of that time frame, but I've had to incorporate them with that to make the flow of the book make sense, if you saw what I mean. I had yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Time. Yeah. So yeah, probably three years, like focusing on that particular aspect of the book, but a lot of it was kind of in my head brewing around before that. So once you'd got the idea, the concept that the garden was, was the way to tell the story, 
how do you actually go about writing a book when you've got your first blank page how do you start what's the process for you Lula oh well I'm um I have a sort of system now this is my second book but it's different for lots of people so I also teach creative writing and so a lot of my students approach things differently and you know I've listened to lots of writers talking and but my process is that I start with an idea I do a kind of brainstorm um, like a mind map of all the things that I'm interested in and then I try and work out if there's any themes emerging from those things if I can sort of find a thread that might connect it together mm. and when I feel I've got that I go off and start the research and then I get like really into my stationery and I buy post-it notes and index cards <laughs> and I make this kind of mad wall that looks like a sort of serial killer <laughs> basement <laughs> and I, I I'm quite visual so I like to have everything up there and then I can see where things might hang hang together and then I go back to my notes and I sort of annotate them depending on where they're going to fit so for me it starts with um the idea and the themes and then I try and create this kind of narrative arc and then I just do tons of research and reading and then I do the writing it sounds like a real jigsaw all these pieces that you're putting together on this big wall chart the stickers and then you then start to collate it and pull it together yeah. and then put it into chapters and then write the book exactly the one thing for me that i love about a great book is the description and certainly there's the beautiful exquisite descriptions of being out in the garden um you write at one point that the sparrows are squabbling up in the plum tree throwing up into the air all at once and then clattering across the lawn it just i can picture that how easy is it for you to be able to write descriptively is that something that comes very intuitively to you do you have to go back outside and actually see that happen can you retain it in your brain um, those bits were such a joy to write because they were so different from the kind of more researchy bits um, and they were written in the garden I sat there with my notebook and I just wrote what I could see and what I could hear um, and what I could smell I was really trying to kind of almost like a stream of consciousness just let the writing come um, and I was thinking of it in a very sensorial way so I wanted the garden to feel alive and I wanted yeah like I said the smells and the sounds and you know I'm in a town it's not this kind of beautiful rural idyll there are mm. traffic noises and there's a police um, police station right next door and often they're you know smoking and their vape smokes drifting over my garden it's not <laughs> it's not some kind of amazing um, place and I wanted all of those things to be in that bit as they came to me when I was kind of sitting out there. So when you when you're actually thinking about writing, are you able to do you just write and commit to it and then move on? Or do you find yourself going back and thinking, oh, I think I could write that better? Um, kind of both. There are some days when it's really flowing and I just go with it um, and that's joyous, but they're rare. Usually it's a bit of a slog and you have to go back over and over and over. I also do other work, so I haven't got a huge amount of time. So with the time I've got, I have to be really productive with it. And I can't spend a lot of time just tinkering over like one sentence. I've got to get the words on the mm. page. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, my process is just to write a first draft and I don't worry too much about how terrible it is. I just want to get it on the page. So I'm not staring at a blank page and thinking I can't do anything. And then once I've got something a bit like if you're sculpting with some clay you need a kind of blob mm. and then you you can refine the blob and you can shape it so i i treat my writing a bit like that my first draft is a kind of blob and then i try and go back and refine it and then being edited as well my editor's amazing and um so we did another couple of rounds of edits with her so 
it, yeah, it very much get, gets to a point where you feel like you can't do any more and you just have to step away. So for those of us who don't know how the editor's role works, you've written a chapter, you pass it to them and they go through it again for you. Do they, they, do they give you feedback or suggestions? How does the editor role work? Well, with my editor, Laura at Granta, so I've worked with her on two books now, the way we do it is I finish the whole manuscript and I send it over to her. And then she does um, a kind of broad sweeping edit. So she finds things uh, maybe structurally that aren't working um, and thinks about how we could move chunks of text around. And then I come back and I do all of those changes. And she's, I don't, I think some editors just say, you know, this bit isn't working. And then the writer has to go and solve that problem. Mm. But she's very um, helpful about saying you could try it like this or you could say this or um, so she'll give suggestions and I can either accept them or not. That's kind of up to me. And so I do all those edits and I send it back to her and she does a much more uh, close read. So it's called a line edit where she goes line by line and looks at, you know, am I repeating things? Have I said something, you know, completely wrong? Um, is the language different? Is, is it flowing together? So I make those changes and then it goes off for a kind of copy edit. And then there's, so there's all these different stages where it's being checked. Um, and in a way that I, I mean, it's such an honor to have people reading your words and to have them sort of engaging with them and yeah. thinking about them. Throughout the book, again, there are some wonderful comparisons um, between gardening and real life itself. Um, you say for all its fluidity, the garden is at least a physical, tangible space that I can, to some extent, manipulate and create. A family is much more amorphous and slippery. Were these comparisons a conscious decision you wanted to try and put these throughout the book? Again, when you had this big wall chart with all these ideas, was that something that was uh, something you wanted to include? Um, it wasn't as conscious as that with the family stuff, because um, when I started planning the book, I didn't obviously know about coronavirus and <laughs> um, the kind of pressures that would have put on our family. But also my my children, I've got th four children and three of them are teenagers. So there was lots of stuff that I hadn't anticipated and, um, you know, they were having mental health problems. And so there were lots of things that were happening that I hadn't foreseen in any way, but I felt they needed to be in the book because they were the things I was going out to the garden to escape or to work through or to make myself feel that the world made sense again. Um, so they they were in the book because it felt like they had to be rather than that's what I set out to write about. And I, I did ask my family if they were OK with me writing about them. And there were actually some bits that I took out because I felt like it was probably a bit too, too close. Mm. Um, did did writing through the pandemic change the emphasis of the book in any way? Did, were there any subtle variations? Because I think at that time, not only did the gardeners get outside into their garden, but a lot of non-gardeners suddenly found a green space and made that connection. Was that something you were mindful of? Well, I'd written the bulk of it before that. Um, but right. as I was doing the edits, I was more aware of that. And I was aware of this idea of uncertainty and the kind of um, the reassurance that we get from the natural world. And also this idea that we are, we're so fallible as humans, but we like to think we're not. And then being faced with this like, epic uh, realization that we were totally fallible and that you know a virus is a natural thing and we're part of the natural world and so yes it was informing all of that this idea that we're not separate from nature we are part of nature and that we can't control things 
so yeah it was it did inform a lot of it and um you know it's so wonderful to see people getting out in their gardens when they hadn't before and you know reading that garden centers were selling out of plants and things yeah. you know it's so wonderful um and i hope that people have managed to carry on and you know they haven't had to just go back to you know before but um yeah so it kind of the bulk of the writing was done the bulk of the thinking was done but it definitely informed as i went back to it and went mm. through the last stages of writing it definitely informed that uh, again, throughout the book, there are some great gardening observations. As a professional gardener myself, there were parts of the book that really made me smile. Um, I want to share with you something. You wrote about dandelions. I don't know if you remember this. You said, dandelions everywhere. I've been trying to ignore them. <laughs> don't we all? Um, but I can't put off tackling them anymore. I prefer the jobs that require a lot more movement and dramatic changes, but I'm trying to get better at these unappealing tasks. I take my pocket knife and my phone and sit on the grass at the back of the lawn with a podcast to listen to, Mike the Gardener, I hope, of <laughs> and the late afternoon sun on my back. The work of digging around each dandelion and levering its roots from the soil begins to feel almost relaxing. There's so many parts, gardening parts in the book that really made me smile because I think we all have these little areas in the garden. I have dandelions. I do try to ignore them because it isn't the most adventurous part of gardening. There are greater things to do. There's a real secret, I guess, a sort of real knack in tuning in to things that other people can relate to. How do you do that? And how do you know that people will relate to that? Because that happens so many times reading that. It's like, oh, gosh, yes, that's so true. Oh, that's so good to hear because you don't, well, I don't, I just hope it's like you're kind of sending your book out into the world and just hoping that people don't go, what the hell is she talking about? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's very reassuring to hear that, that, that there are things that you can relate to in it because I was just hoping that would be the case. Um, and also, you know, from what I was reading and the things that I liked hearing about in people's work um, and in people's podcasts and thinking about gardening and talking to gardeners, I was just trying to give a flavour of all of that really and just hoping that it would resonate. <laughs> well it, it really did and because there were so many instances in the book when I sort of had a, like a knowing smile on my face it's like how does a, a good author do that how do they know that we'll all be sat there going oh I can recognise that in myself uh, it's very clever uh, and sort of like say all the way through the book there were those references which I really enjoyed. Um, We've talked about the, the pandemic and sort of like how it's affected people. And in fact, Sue Stewart-Smith, who reviewed your book, has said an intimate exploration of what it means to be rooted in place and of how a garden can become a safe haven in uncertain times. That's quite a big theme in the book, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I was very interested in, like her book's amazing about the kind of therapeutic benefits, the mental health benefits of gardening. Um, and I think there's like a quite a big body of research now that shows that just, you know, even having a view of a green space can help people recover better from operations or they need less anaesthetic. And mm -hmm. um, I think we're just becoming more aware. We sort of know it intuitively when we go outside in the garden, we feel better. But I think now we're just understanding how those things kind of operate on our system. Um, so, I, yeah, that was a big part of it for me. I didn't want it to feel like a sort of one of those slightly simple oh, if we all go outside in our garden, we'll all be okay. Obviously, that's not the case. But no. I am interested in the benefits of, you know, just the fact that putting your hand in soil releases, you know, there are microbes in the soil. You know, there's very tangible 
benefits from those things. I'm always saying to my kids, just go out in the garden, do some digging. And they're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> like you're saying, it's actually proven. It's not just me being a kind of annoying mum. There is, you know, it's proven that the colour green can reduce anxiety and stress and the, the, the meditativeness of garden tasks, just doing those things, um, the, the kind of self-esteem that you're growing something and you've got something beautiful to look at. And I talk about prison gardens and the way that people who've maybe struggled with addiction problems, they have less chances of relapsing if they've been working on a garden in the prison. And, you know, there are so many cases where the simple act of tending soil can make you feel better. Um, and, you know, we all need a bit of that. I seem to recall probably about seven, eight years ago, there was a prison garden at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. Oh, I think wow. 20 or so inmates had set up a gardening club and had, again, as you've just said, understood the benefits of getting outside and connecting with that green space, tending to plants, nurturing plants, growing produce. Um, and this culminated in this garden at the Chelsea Flower Show. And you also mentioned about children and gardening as well. Uh, do you think, uh, what is the, is how do you get children into gardening, isn't it? Because I think as a kid, I even, even for myself, I remember thinking, oh gosh, the garden, there's so much more to do. How do we get kids gardening, do you think? That's such a good question. Um, and I'm, I mean, my kids don't really do much gardening, but I'm hoping that what I've done is planted a few seeds that when they're a bit older, they might go back to it, you know, but they spend a lot of time out there when they were little. Mm. Um, and I think the way that kids interact with landscapes is something that we could. So when we're trying to get kids into gardening, kind of giving them very directed, uh, rigid things to do might not really appeal. But if we could say, just go and fill up a bucket with as much earth as you can and then, you know, poke some holes in it or have a count how many worms you can see. I think it's about the like the curiosity, following their curiosity and giving them things that like sunflowers that look really spectacular when they do grow. So they get a sense of achievement or things they can pick and taste we've got raspberries and my kids would always love you know going out to pick the raspberries that's mm. one of their jobs so giving them little tasks and not being too controlling about it um and i think just always bringing the garden into the house so it's not an outside place like you have to go to so yeah, having yeah. flowers in the house i mean just now my dog brought in a big a flower pot full of earth and just spilled it all over the carpet <laughs> literally bringing the garden into the house which is really quite annoying um but I think that can help as well so it's not like we've got to go out to the garden it's just that there's a kind of flow in and out um and just trying to you know if you tell them about you know this moth that drinks the tears of birds or the the toads that give birth through their backs like those kind of amazing facts I think they're, they're the things that kids really love Mm. Um, and giving them maybe a little bit of land if you've got the room so they can really have something of their own my dad did that with me when I was probably about eight um and it, I didn't manage to grow anything I don't think uh, but it was my my place and when you're a child you don't have very many places like that so yeah I had I exactly the same with my parents a very small probably two meter square patch at the end of our garden behind a, an old wall was given to me to do what I wanted with. And it was a start of, well, a career for me, just being there and thinking, what can I do? Um, and I didn't do a lot. I planted some bulbs. We had a little lawn that we um, grew from seed, but it was just enough for me to be able to connect and understand um, what it was all about. That's lovely. And I think things that are 
you know, easy and immediate, like those bee bomb things, you know, they're, they usually work and there's usually something bright and colourful. So I think it's quite, dis- I mean, it's dispiriting as an adult when things get eaten by slugs or they don't work. Yeah. And I think if that happens when you're a child, you'll just be like, well, this is rubbish. I don't mm-hmm. want to do this. And also I think children, if they're particularly young, don't understand that you don't just plant a seed and immediately there's a flower, <laughs> that there is this idea of having to wait. Um, so I think it's uh, talking to them about that, but giving some sort of instant stuff as well that, you know even cress we um at easter yeah. we kind of do um cress in little eggshells so it looks like hair and we draw faces on them so even things like that indoors if you don't have an outside space you can grow things indoors that's yeah we've all got a windowsill that we can use to, like you yeah. say, to grow cress on or to put a bulb in or something just to show nature actually doing its thing yeah. irrespective of the fact it's not actually outside Another theme in the book, and again, something that really related to me, I have roses in my garden, which which came from my parents' garden, um, that sort of link to friends, family and loved ones through gifts, sharing plants. That's quite an important part, I think, of gardening. Yeah, and it particularly was to me after just losing my mum, I, I was trying, I had this weird sort of in my head I thought I've got to make my garden look beautiful for her I don't know where she is anymore she's not here but somehow the garden had to be as good as I could possibly make it um and yeah we're selling her house so soon we won't have any access to her garden so we've been you know taking plants taking cuttings Mm. um I've got some primroses from there that look absolutely amazing now and she loved them you know they were her favorite flower so there's lots of things in my garden that came from her garden hollyhocks she bought a rose for my daughter when my daughter was young and that's growing and so it is this idea of connecting to people and to places that aren't there anymore I think that's it's so strong and so powerful and I, I remembered um, there was a man that I heard on it was on the radio and he um, had come from Jamaica years and years and years ago and brought some uh, beans over with him and he's still growing plants from those original beans and that sense of like carrying a place with you to somewhere else or carrying a person keeping them alive in some sort of way it's so reassuring yeah I walk into my garden and it's sort of like a a collection of nostalgic memories from friends family and loved ones who've bought plants have shared plants and each plant it might be a hosta but it's a hosta from a friend a, a relative um, and then as they get bigger, you divide them. So that love is sort of spread around your own garden and passed on to other people. I think that's just such a, a lovely part of gardening. Yeah, it's wonderful. And gardeners are such, they're so generous. And I love that idea of community and the idea that we can go to a local seed swap and just swap things. We don't have to buy into the kind of packaged, um, you know, mass produced seed things. We can just swap them with friends or you know, instead of taking someone some flowers from a florist, you could just take them a plant from your garden that they could plant in theirs. I do think that's, yeah, it's, and I, it's something I didn't really know about gardeners until I got into gardening was this, just this sense of sharing and the sharing of wisdom um, and of physical plants as well. So what's next for you, Lula? You've obviously got this book when we publish the podcast will have been out for two weeks. First and foremost, what's it like walking into a bookshop and seeing your book on the shelf? Oh, it's such an amazing feeling and also really terrifying. <laughs> so, um, there's this kind of sense of, oh, oh God, we've really done it. You know, oh, yeah. it's really there. Um, and amazing, how amazing to see all those kind of years of work in front of you. And then you just kind of try and move it to the top of the pile so that people... <laughs> <laughs> so everybody can see it. 
Oops, I've just moved that again. So, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of feelings. It is mostly complete joy and pride, and then a bit of terror. <laughs> and what next then? Do you have another book in the pipeline, and will you continue the gardening theme, or is it going to be a departure from that to move on to fresh fields? I'm not quite sure. Um, it's a weird state for me because when I finished my first book, I, this one was kind of already brewing in my mind. So I haven't kind of had a gap for a while. And I think I actually need that to make sure that I do something, you know, that I, I don't know, I haven't quite settled on what I'm doing next. There's a project that might come off, um, but we're still sort of in negotiation. So I can't really talk about that, but that will be mm. lovely. And that's a sort of nature themed thing as well. Um, and I might be doing some garden writing for a local magazine. So I would love to keep on, you know, doing garden related things, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll definitely do another book. I'm just not quite sure. I sort of fancy doing some fiction, but I've never done that before and I'm a bit nervous about it. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> sure. I guess that's a nice thing as a writer. You, you can turn your writing to any subject if it's well researched, irrespective of whether you know the subject or not. You can clearly go out and find out what you need to write about. I think so. I mean, I think fiction is a different craft. And I think um, I would have to pr do lots of work on the actual kind of craft of it first. Mm. But I quite fancy that as a challenge. But I do love nonfiction. I love the research. Um, and I feel like there's a third book. There is a third nonfiction book in there. I just haven't quite found the shape of it yet. Well, whatever it is, I look forward to reading it. But I have to say, Grounding, Finding a Home and a Garden, uh, published by Granta Books on the 7th of April. A fantastic read, thoroughly recommend it. And just a pleasure to chat to you today and find out a little bit more about the process of writing about the book and about yourself. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. So... If, like me, there's a gap on your bookshelf that you're just waiting to fill, then I can highly recommend Grounding, Finding Home in a Garden, published by Granta Books. And as you've heard in this episode, there's plenty of great gardening content, history, politics and a great story to boot. If you want more information about the book or to read more about Lula, you can head to her website, lulaellender.com. Now, I've read the book. So I'm heading off out into my garden to catch up on some gardening jobs. And top of my gardening list today is pricking out seedlings, potting on some cuttings, and then there's the lawn that needs to be edged and mown. And yes, a lawn isn't a lawn unless it's been edged. In fact, many years ago, a great gardening friend of mine said that if you only have five minutes to do something in the garden, then edge your lawn. It can cover a multitude of sins. So whatever you're doing now, enjoy, and I look forward to you joining me next week when I'll be joined by the wonderful Chris Collins, who's a passionate and very experienced gardener, gardening broadcaster, and perhaps, most famously, was the Blue Peter Gardener for a decade. Yes, I'll be there in a moment, Benson. Chris and I met at Kew Gardens in London and had a really great chat. So do listen out for that and I'll see you next week. Bye bye for now. Bye bye.